This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to remind you that Amanda and I have created a Patreon page for the podcast this year. If you become a Patreon member, you can gain early access to episodes without ads, access to bonus episodes, a monthly newsletter with study tips, and more. You can join by visiting www.patreon.com slash certified OCS prep podcast. Also, if you're using MedBridge to study, you can get $175 off your yearly membership by using our affiliate code certified. If you have any questions about MedBridge or Patreon, you can email us at certifiedocspodcast at gmail.com. Everyone, today we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the knee. Um, similar to the hip, last season we did several episodes on the knee, including ligament injuries, um, our uh, articular cartilage injuries, stuff like that. So one area we didn't really cover much was patellofemoral pain and there's a newer CPG out on patellofemoral pain. So we thought it would be important to do an episode on that, which is what we're going to go over today. Most of that information that we're going to cover is from the CPG, but I will tell you there are many other sources to get this information from. Um, I know it's touched on in current concepts. Um, Ortho Secrets covers it a little bit too. So, you know, use your resources where you see fit. Um, but essentially, patellofemoral pain is a very common musculoskeletal condition that's characterized by an insidious onset of poorly defined pain at the anterior retropatellar and or peripatellar region of the knee. Um, the onset could be slow and gradual or acute in nature. Symptoms will often be increased with lower extremity loading activities, such as squatting, stair negotiation, prolonged sitting, jumping, or running. And the symptoms will often have been present for years before they're going to seek medical treatment. So even though sometimes you're going to see an acute exacerbation, it's in the clinic, it's likely not their first acute exacerbation. And a lot of the other cases you will see, I think in my experience, it's more so a chronic issue um, that it will have been kind of slow, gradual, and insidious and onset. The major point of this new CPG is not only to cover um, how to manage these cases, but they also suggest a new classification system that goes over four subcategories of patellofemoral pain. Those include patellofemoral pain with overuse or overload without any other impairment, patellofemoral pain with muscle performance deficits, patellofemoral pain with movement coordination deficits, and patellofemoral pain with mobility impairments. So when we look at patellofemoral pain and its prevalence and incidence, there's cited ranges anywhere from 3 to 85%, which is obviously a huge range. Um, The literature suggests that 25% is the most often cited prevalence. So it's still pretty high. You know, a quarter of the population at some point is probably going to have a bout of, you know, knee pain that we would categorize as patellofemoral in nature. The highest prevalence is going to be in those Uh, patients 12 to 19 years of age with another concentrated increase in prevalence in that 50 to 59. And, you know, the CPG suggests that that may be partially due to reporting numbers in terms of what type of clinic these patients are being seen in. If it's primarily a sports performance-based clinic versus a general orthopedic clinic, um, that may account for some of those differences. 
The cited estimates of prevalence numbers suggest that 55% of patients with patellofemoral pain are female. And in young female athletes, the incidence is estimated at approximately 10 athletes, 10 um, affected per 100 athletes. Um, So again, about 10% in young female athletes. Approximately 70 to 90% of patients with patellofemoral pain will experience recurrent symptoms. So this does have a very high rate of reoccurrence which goes back to what I was saying in the acute phase. If they come in in an acute bout of pain, it's probably not their first one. It should be noted that patellofemoral pain is not a self-limiting condition, and it's not necessarily going to resolve over time as it was previously thought when it was diagnosed in adolescence. So, you know, historically when patellofemoral pain has been diagnosed, it was always seen as an adolescent type of injury or diagnosis and that kids would merely grow out of it. Um, newer research tells us that's probably not the case. And there's some other underlying issues and mechanical faults that are probably contributing to that, that need addressed in order for them to be able to function without that recurrent pain. The pathoanatomical features that we're going to cover are pretty long for this area. So I touch on a couple mechanical things, and then we'll talk a little bit about the whole lower extremity chain. The patellofemoral joint comprises the articulation between the patella and the trochlear groove. And just to review, the roles of the patella are to increase the moment arm of the quad, provide a bony protection to the distal joint surfaces of the femur, and to prevent any um, damaging compressive forces on the quad tendon with resisted knee extension activities. Pathoanatomic correlations have been poorly linked to symptoms. Thus, currently in practice, it's suggested that a diagnosis is based upon a cluster of signs and symptoms. You know, I think that's something we definitely keep saying over and over, kind of regardless of body region. That's certainly the approach with the lumbar spine. And you'll see it again here that, you know, just because an x-ray says one thing, you know, if an x-ray shows patella alta, it doesn't necessarily mean that the patient's going to have patellofemoral pain. 93% of patients with patellofemoral pain will report pain with squatting. 91% will report pain with stair negotiation and 90% with running. Those patients will often use modified mechanics, most often um, a decreased use of knee flexion when they're going up and down the stairs. More than half of these patients are going to report pain with prolonged sitting, and about a quarter of patients will report pain after they do some kind of exercise or dynamic activity. So those functional tasks, meaning um, squatting, stair climbing, running, prolonged sitting, are currently the best diagnostic indicators of patellofemoral pain. So again, they, it's suggested that this is really a diagnosis of exclusion. You know, they're going to rule out any kind of ligamentous involvement, which we'll talk about when we get to the differential diagnosis. Once everything else is ruled out, it's kind of, if they're having pain with those activities, it's pretty fair certainty that they have some patellofemoral um, pain issues happening. Patients with patellofemoral pain are also likely going to report pain with palpation of the medial or distal aspects of the patella, pain with palpation of the medial plica and or the medial femoral condyle, and the pain may also be present with grinding or compression of the patella. I don't know, Alexis, if you do a lot of grinding or compressing of the patella. Sometimes if they're not really acutely irritable or symptomatic, I will do it just to see if I can bring on their symptoms if it's a little difficult to reproduce. Um, But in an acute case or someone that seems very apprehensive, sometimes these patients are a little bit kinesophobic because some of the instabilities that come with this can lead to like subluxation and whatnot. And I think they're a little nervous if you start grinding or compressing their patella. Um, But it's something to note that they'll probably have pain with that. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think too, if you think about the population that, I mean, I generally see like younger people with this. So if you come at them with something that's going to hurt like that, it doesn't get you a lot of buy-in, at least in my experience. So I would agree. I would agree. Um, A recent systematic review concluded that age, body mass, height, and BMI are not risk factors for developing patellofemoral pain. And additionally, a Q angle, an increased Q angle is not a risk factor for the development of patellofemoral pain. So I think that's interesting. You know, I think historically the Q angle has been, you know, increased Q angle has been faulted for a lot of issues at the knee. And in this case, it may not have the same risk associated with it that we once thought. Overall, excessive foot pronation does not appear to be a common finding across research studies examining patients with patellofemoral pain. However, in a certain subpopulation of the military, an increased navicular drop based on research has been associated with the development of patellofemoral pain, and they link that to the activity level that those folks are doing. And more so than that, it usually has to do with the dramatic increase in activity levels. So they reference the military population pretty often throughout this CPG, and it has to do with not only the loads that they're sustaining, but the dramatic increases in load, especially during boot camp. So just something to be aware of, you know, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about foot position and how to assess that as we go. Um, But know that overall, it's not going to be a consistent risk factor. Compared to healthy controls, patients who develop um, patellofemoral pain have weaker quads when assessed with a dynamometer. Quad atrophy is also going to be a common finding, but that's only been validated on imaging studies, and it's not consistent in clinical practice with girth measurements. So it's probably not something we can hang our hat on in the clinic. Tom and colleagues discovered approximately 18% of the time quad quad inhibition when they looked at EMG findings were noted in this population, and that suggests that some of the pain generated from the patellofemoral joint may be partially due to the inhibited central nervous drive causing a loss of quad strength as opposed to a true loss in muscle mass. Femoral pain also have weakness of the hip abductors, hip extensors, and your hip external rotators with a reduced rate of force development. Newer research is suggesting that hip weakness may be a result of patellofemoral pain and not the direct cause of patellofemoral pain because research studies now tell us that there's no association between hip strength and the development of patellofemoral pain. So I think that's something that's interesting. You know, I guess maybe something to just keep your eye on, you know, as research is coming out in this area, you know, where is that cause and cause and effect happening at? These patients are also going to commonly present with an increased frontal plane projection angle. You'll see that noted as the FPPA throughout some of these resources. And that's essentially a frontal plane measurement of hip adduction, hip internal rotation, and knee abduction. So essentially an increase in the valgus positioning when they're doing a single leg squat. So I think most of us probably do a single leg squat as a functional assessment when we're evaluating these patients. Um, But the athletic population that you're going to see this in mostly, when they move into that greater projection angle, those folks are the ones that are more likely going to develop that patellofemoral pain. You know, I do see some patients in that 50 to 59-year-old age group that have patellofemoral pain I can't say I'm always doing single leg squatting with them, um, but it's something to be aware of watching those movement patterns. Patellofemoral pain is going to be associated with a high rate of reoccurrence, like we said, and greater than 90% of patients are going to continue to experience some form of pain 
up to four years after diagnosis. So that can be a pretty long time, especially when you're talking about an athletic population. Um, you know, they're obviously not going to rest probably that long. So it's about teaching them to manage. There's little evidence for the predictive factors of who is going to improve and who may not. And currently, concrete data regarding the link between patellofemoral pain and the development of patellofemoral osteoarthritis later in life is lacking. So the risk factors that we're going to touch on a little bit more here. Participation in a single sport was associated with a greater incidence of cumulative patellofemoral pain disorders compared when... Um, compared to athletes who participated in multiple sports. Low knee isometric strength was predictive of the development of patellofemoral pain, and that was assessed using dynamometer. And moderate-level evidence suggests an association of decreased quad flexibility, shorter reflex response time of the vastus medialis oblique, and reduction of the vertical jump height and higher-than-normal patellar mobility is um, with the onset of patellofemoral pain. So sometimes that kind of cluster of things in the athletic population has moderate level evidence. The other interesting factor that they note on imaging studies is increased distances, which they define as greater than 15 millimeters, between the tibial tubercle and the trochlear groove is going to be present, present in about a third of patients with patellofemoral pain. However, that's only present in about 5% of asymptomatic controls. So again, that's not a modifiable factor, but if you're looking at x-ray findings, um, it's just something to be aware of. You're looking at that distance between the tibial tubercle and the trochlear groove, and it's probably going to be increased a third of the time in those patients with patellofemoral pain. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the foot positioning, um, which they categorize as the distal factors or the distal risk factors. The arch height index was not associated with patellofemoral pain, and the numbers of people with patellofemoral pain with pes cavus or pes planus were not different from healthy controls. So patients with patellofemoral pain exhibited less rear foot eversion motion during running, but not necessarily in a static, you know, there's no strong correlation in a static foot positioning. During running, higher rates of time to peak force in the lateral heel and peak force in the central metatarsal regions were demonstrated in people who developed plantar um, patellofemoral pain. Um, that's just important to note because we're going to talk about something a little bit later in the interventions when we talk about runners and certain interventions with them. Um, so just be aware of that. The psychological risk factors um, noted in research are mental health factors of anxiety and depression, cognitive factors such as pain catastrophizing and behavioral factors such as fear of movement are going to probably be elevated in some patients with patellofemoral pain. And they're going to be associated usually with the patients reporting higher, le higher levels of pain and lower levels of function. So, you know, it's not surprising, just like any body region, individuals with a longer duration of symptoms, any of those underlying psychosocial factors and higher baseline pain severity are going to have a more negative outcomes or unfavorable recovery. So um, diagnosis, again, just to kind of reaffirm, you know, I think the CPG repeats itself a lot, but it doesn't hurt to hear it again. You're looking for reproduction of retropatellar pain during squatting and hypomobility of the patellar um, with a patellar tilt test. So those are both your two highest indicators based on likelihood ratios. Um, positive pain with squatting has a likelihood ratio of 1.8 and hypomobility with a patellar tilt test has a likelihood ratio of five. So just to kind of hit home that 
you know, you're confirming your diagnosis, you need to use the reproduction of those two pain provocation tests and those other um, functional tests like stair climbing and prolonged sitting. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper into these four subcategories. Again, these are the ones with, I think, the most updated terminology. So I would make sure if you're studying um, classifications of patellofemoral pain, you're focusing on these ones. The first one is that overuse or overload without other impairment. And this is a subcategory of individuals that may have pain primarily due to overuse or overload. And the classification into the overuse or overload without other impairment subcategory is made with a fair level of certainty when the patient presents with a history suggesting an increase in magnitude or frequency of loading at the rate that surpasses the ability of the joint tissues to recover. So two things that I think are important to highlight in this category are what they define as load magnitude and the load force, load frequency, I'm sorry. Load magnitude refers to the amount of patellofemoral joint loading resulting from physical activity and load frequency refers to the amount of repetition of an activity, um, primarily recreational runners who increase not only the magnitude of their loading, but the frequency of their loading with, um, without, the inadequ without the adequate recovery time are definitely a cohort of people are going to fall into this category. So I would say kind of like your weekend DIYers, your weekend warriors, be looking for them in this population. So what happens is when the individual increases the magnitude and or the frequency of loading during an activity at a greater rate than the tissue can adapt or recover, they move into a zone of super physiologic overload, and that's what's going to cause the, the eventual pain. The second category is the muscle performance deficit subcategory, and that's essentially a subcategory of individuals with patellofemoral pain that may respond favorably to hip and knee resistance exercises. Classification into the muscle performance deficit subcategory can be made with reasonable certainty when the patient presents with lower extremity muscle performance deficits in their hip musculature and their quad musculature. So I think these are probably our, what we would consider like our classic patellofemoral pain cases. I think it merges a little bit with that, you know, just based on my clinical experience with that third category, which is the movement coordination deficits. The movement coordination deficits is a subcategory of individuals with patellofemoral pain that may respond favorably to gait retraining and movement reeducation interventions. So they don't necessarily present with quite the same weakness. I think sometimes there's some overlap, but these folks really need improvements in their lower extremity kinematics and pain to improve their pain. Um, this is really the subcategory you want to be looking at that um, knee valgus. Um, positioning and how they move with dynamic activity, specifically squatting, single leg squatting. The authors of the CPG suggest that additional studies are really needed for this subcategory to identify the best method and the threshold values to identify those deficits. So it's one thing to say, to be able to identify that a patient has, you know, a poor movement pattern and they go into increased valgus but what extent of that is really contributing to their symptoms. And that's where I think the knowledge gap is um, in terms of the research and, you know, movement retraining is really the way to go with that. That being said, that takes a while and that's a really concentrated effort. So that, you know, a lot of times I think some of the patients that go into that increased valgus do have some hip weakness that contributes to it, but not always. So that's kind of where you draw the line between those second and third subcategories. The fourth subcategory 
is the mobility impairment, patellofemoral pain with mobility impairment subcategory. And that's a subcategory of individuals with patellofemoral pain that may have impairments related to either hypermobile or hypomobile structures, doesn't necessarily have to be at just the knee. So the diagnosis of patellofemoral pain with mobility impairment can be made with reasonable certainty when the patient presents with higher than normal foot mobility and or flexibility deficits of one or more of the following structures, hamstrings, quads, gastric, soleus, the lateral retinaculum, or the IT band. So really there you're looking at the whole chain and those folks, you know, is their foot, do they have pes cavus, pes planus, is that contributing to a flexibility deficit further up the chain? So again, just making sure you're not looking at just the knee and these folks kind of assessing them all the way up and down. So that kind of goes over the four categories. I think it's a brief overview. You know, I'm not going to get into it too much. If you want to read more in detail about it, they're outlined in the CPG, but it doesn't have a dramatic impact on our evaluation or treatment. So I think it's more important to recognize for the terminology and what, which direction to lead yourself. The next um, area we're going to talk about is differential diagnosis. They list a small section here that I think is important just to review, just so we all hear it again. Um, but anytime some, you're concerned about tumor, dislocation, septic arthritis, arthrofibrosis, a DVT, neurovascular compromise, a fracture, either somewhere around the knee joint or at the hip or ankle. And like Alexis has mentioned in our hip episodes, those skiffies are the slipped capital femoral epiphysis in children or adolescents. Those are your um, immediate referral type of diagnoses or concerning things. Those are your treat, or I'm sorry, your refer only, not your even treat and refers. So one thing we, I want to touch on um, to review for presence of acute fractures is the Ottawa and the Pittsburgh knee decision rules. So both of those rules have been determined to have a high sensitivity for acute knee fractures um, and avoid help to avoid unnecessary radiographs. The Ottawa knee rule is reported to be more sensitive than the Pittsburgh knee rule, but it's limited to patients 18 years and older. The Pittsburgh knee rule is going to be um, more appropriate for your younger folks as it's validated in people of all ages. Hip and thigh pathologies have been reported to refer to the knee. So people who participate in high levels of physical activity, again, that military personnel, um, sometimes like your fire, your EMS, depending on where, what type of environment they're working in, they may develop femoral fractures that, that present like a patellofemoral pain. It could refer pain down. Um, so again, just making sure you're screening for those pathologies, either proximally or distally. The differential diagnosis should consider conditions that are distant but may refer pain to the knee. Again, considering your lumbar radiculopathy, your peripheral nerve entrapments, or hip OA, those would be your category of other differential diagnoses that are still appropriate for treatment. Um, you know, they may need some other medical screening, but if you think, you know, sometimes knee pain, anterior knee pain could be characteristic of like a lumbar radiculopathy. So the differential diagnosis should also include conditions local to the knee. For example, those ligamentous injuries, especially if it's an acute pain, cruciate and collateral ligaments. You want to be checking for meniscus injuries, articular cartilage injuries, OA, iliotibial band issues, quad and patellar tendinopathies, which sometimes definitely can have a lot of similar um, clinical presentation. Um, and then, again, some of those pediatric diagnoses are those osgood Schlatter and Sinding-Larsen-Johansson lesions, which is where you get um, an apophysitis at the patella. 
again, looking for patellar subluxation and dislocations or instabilities. Um, those do not necessarily fall into the, this uh, clinical practice guideline. If someone comes in with anterior knee pain specifically, the other diagnoses to consider other than the patellofemoral pain are patellar tendinopathy, also known as jumper's knee, patellar subluxation or dislocations, and then those two apophysitis, the Osgood schlatter and the sending larsen johansson Pain from a patellar tendinopathy is typically localized to the inferior pole of the patella or near the tibial tubercle. And patellar tendinopathy may be differentiated from patellofemoral pain by pain located over the patellar tendon, tenderness to the patellar tendon only, and a symptom response. Um, patellofemoral joint pain is probably going to be a little bit more diffuse. A patellar tendon pain, which I think is sometimes one of the hardest ones to differentially diagnose there, is going to be a little bit more tender right over the tibial tubercle. If patellar instability or a history of patellar dislocation is suspected based on your subjective interview, then a reported apprehension um, with medial and lateral patellar glides is probably going to be your, um, your clinical indicating factor there. Anterior knee pain in children, again, could be due to those apophysitis diagnoses at the tibial tubercle, which is osgood slaughter or the inferior pole of the patellar, which is sending larsen johansson not quite as common as osgood slaughter osgood slaughter is going to be a little bit more common. So just be aware of that. Again, like we talked about in the hip episode, I think sometimes PEDS cases come in, you know, they're screened very quickly in an urgent care, acute care, or by an athletic trainer or something. And, you know, it seems like an acute episode, but if you question them further, sometimes it's they've had multiple episodes of this before, and they really have some kind of underlying, more chronic issue happening there. Again, just making sure you're screening for your psychosocial factors of pain catastrophizing, the kinesiophobia, fear avoidance, anxiety, and depression. Those are your yellow flags, and it may, prov- may affect their prognosis and the rehabilitation there. Um, what we're going to move into next is the examination. So the first fairly large chunk of examination goes into a lot, a lot of detail about knee outcome measures. Um, there's a lot of research out there on them. I don't know that it's important to know all of the research about all of them. So I'm going to touch on the ones that they mention as being important. Um, and if you're unfamiliar with them, I would recommend reading back through at least part of this. So they recommend that clinicians should use the AKPS, the COOS, or the visual analog scale to assess both activity and function as well as pain in these patients. So again, you know, I think clinically there's rationale for using the lefts maybe. Um, There's a ton out there, but those are the ones recommended in the CPG. We've talked about activity limitations a bunch. This part gets a little bit repetitive. But the most accurate diagnostic clinical test for patellofemoral pain is the reproduction of pain with squatting, um, followed by stair negotiation and prolonged sitting. Um, The other thing they mention here, which has good evidence to associate with it, is the eccentric step-down test. Now, this is not something functionally a patient's going to probably tell you they've done a lot of. But if you put them through an eccentric eccentric step-down test, which is exactly what it sounds like, a reproduction of that anterior knee pain during the test is considered positive. And with a likely a positive likelihood ratio of two, it's suggestive of patellofemoral pain. So not a bad test to include. The other two um, specific pain provocation tests that they mention are the Waldron test, phase one and two, and a Clark sign. Those are essentially compression tests and grinding tests. Um, even though they have low diagnostic value, 
using them in a cluster can help to confirm or refute a diagnosis. The patellar tilt test is a measure of the lateral retinacular tightness. It has low to moderate intratester and intertester reliability. Um, it has a moderate likelihood ratio, meaning that a positive finding would be useful for ruling in a diagnosis of patellofemoral pain. So again, not something that would be recommended to use single-handedly to rule it in, um, but in cluster with subjective report and some of these other findings is a good one to have um, knowledge of. The foot position test that they talk about um, to assess whether or not, you know, a PES plan of foot position is contributing to this would be the navicular drop test. And that's going to assess the amount of subtalar pronation that's used and the foot posture index. And the foot posture index is a six item scale that's going to assess foot position based on Taylor head palpation, the curvature um, above and below the lateral malleolus, and then the inversion or eversion or abduction and adduction. Patient with a higher score on a foot posture index is going to have a more pronated foot and may benefit from the use of a foot orthosis to help. Again, though, not a standalone treatment. So there's limited data to suggest um, the um, use of muscle length tests, specifically for hip flexors and hip internal external rotation. Um, however, it's something that is still worth checking out, you know, using clinical judgment because limited hip external rotation could contribute to an increased femoral internal rotation during weight pairing activities, which could increase the lat the loading at the lateral aspect of the patellofemoral joint. So again, just something not to skip over. Um, you know, the research is good for its correlation to symptoms. The research is not good for, um, how we're going to specifically assess that and assess its, um, how, how much we're going to implicate it. Um, there is a little section here I want to highlight. We're not going to read through it because it's very redundant, but it outlines it nicely in a little bit of a chart format. On page 39 of the CPG, they have what they call their best practice point, And that just in a bullet form outlines the diagnosis of patellofemoral pain and how to classify them. So it's there and available to you. That's also followed by several different charts to help with those special tests if you're not familiar with like the Clark sign and compression testing. The last section we're going to cover here are the interventions. So this is pretty, um, it's pretty vague in terms of which categories deserve which interventions. So we're going to kind of go over it as a whole, <clears throat> as a whole, but essentially the long story short of this is that exercise therapy is hands down going to be your best intervention. Exercise therapies are going to consist of knee and or hip targeted exercise performed in a weight bearing or non-weight bearing positions or both. Results are often provided based on a combination of interventions. So keep that in mind as you, if you read through this and go through the research studies. The other thing I will say is not all of the research studies that they mention were very good about defining exactly what exercises they did. So sometimes it's a little difficult to compare. They really looked at it as weight-bearing versus non-weight-bearing. We're also going to talk about foot orthoses, manual therapy, patellar taping in combination with exercise therapy, and any combination of three or more of those adjunct interventions with the exercise therapy is going to give you your best outcome. So a 2016 Cochrane review concluded that exercise therapy reduced pain and improved function with moderate to large effect sizes when compared with the control or sham therapy in the short term. Currently, research regarding the optimal dosage is unclear, 
And part of that's due to that inadequate exercise reporting that I was just mentioning. So the biggest unknown when we're talking about exercise therapy for this folks is frequency, dosage, and exactly what interventions we're doing. So the first subcategory of exercise that they talk about is knee-targeted exercise therapy. Evidence suggests that weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing quadricep strengthening exercises result in different differential patterns of patellofemoral joint loading, which is not surprising. But there was a study that reported equivalent reductions in pain and improvement in function at six weeks in individuals who completed weight-bearing versus non-weight-bearing using targeted knee exercises. Most importantly, though, both weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing knee-targeted exercises were superior to the control, which was their wait-and-see approach. So their control group didn't do anything. And in the short term, both the weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing group did better. The weight-bearing group did even a little bit better. So um, they go into a little bit more detail in the medium-term and long-term, you know, periods of time with these folks with knee-targeted therapy. Essentially, the summary is that the therapy demonstrated superior superiority compared to the sham treatment in short, medium, and long-term. It's not, sh- it's not clear in the medium and long-term exactly how long that carryover is good for. So the additional, additional research is also needed to make a definitive recommendation regarding high versus low volume knee targeted exercise therapies. So that kind of goes along with the dosing and the frequency high volume versus low volume, how many reps, um, you know, sets, duration of a program too. So those parameters are all kind of the jury's out. We're next going to talk about hip targeted exercise therapy with, with knee targeted exercise therapy. So one high quality randomized control trial assessed an eight week intervention of hip targeted exercise compared with knee targeted exercises and reported superior outcomes for pain and function in the group that completed the hip targeted exercises. It should be noted that weight bearing exercises, including leg presses, step downs, step ups, and squats were considered in addition to resisted non weight bearing knee extension exercises. In another high quality randomized control trial, individuals with patellofemoral pain randomized into four weeks of isolated hip target exercises, four weeks of isolated knee targeted exercises had greater improvements compared to individuals who received just four weeks of knee targeted exercises. So again, they go into a little bit more detail about some different studies and how long they were, but essentially for the medium term outcomes, they um, had similar results as with the long-term ones. So then they look at combined hip and knee, and that's really where the summary comes in here. Clinicians should include exercise therapy with combined hip and knee targeted exercises in these individuals. So hip targeted exercise should target the posterior lateral hip, and knee targeted exercise includes either weight-bearing or non-weight-bearing exercise as both exercise techniques targeted the knee musculature. So for knee musculature, it doesn't matter as much about um, loaded versus unloaded. Preference to hip targeted exercise over knee targeted exercise may be given in the early stages of treatment. Overall, the combination of hip and knee targeted exercises is preferred over solely knee targeted exercises, which I would imagine for most of us is, is probably what we're doing. You know, most people I think do a fair amount of hip work with these folks. And do you have anything you want to add Alexis on 
hip versus knee specific exercises. I don't think so. I agree with you. I, I think most people are probably, hopefully, doing both with these patients anyway. Right. The next um, intervention they talk about here is patellar taping. So essentially with level B evidence, they suggest that clinicians can use patellar taping, but it needs to be in combination with the exercise therapy. And the the patellar taping should really be used as a pain reduction strategy to allow them to better tolerate the exercise in the short term, up to four weeks. Importantly, they know taping techniques are probably not going to be um, provide any additional benefit in the longer term or when added to more intensive physical therapy. And taping should not be applied with the aim of enhancing muscle function. So again, it should really be applied with the approach of providing some pain relief um, to allow for improved exercise tolerance. They talk about bracing, which is something I feel like I see in the clinic a lot, especially my adolescent females with patellofemoral pain. They often come in in a brace. They've done weeks in a brace already usually. But with level B um, evidence, they suggest that clinicians should not use patellofemoral knee orthoses, including braces, sleeves, or straps for the treatment of pain, um, patellofemoral pain in these folks. I think patellofemoral straps are probably best used in like patellar tendinopathies with dynamic activity. Um, foot orthoses. So this one, they go into a little bit more detail, a significant amount more of research, um, but a high quality Cochrane review um, involving 210 participants, so large sample size, reported that foot orthoses resulted in better improvements in knee pain compared with flat orthoses at the six-week time point but not at a year. So again, it's something, you know, if you're measuring a pretty significant navicular drop or they have a higher um, foot posturing index score, it may be worth trying initially, but probably not a long-term solution or a standalone treatment in the um, management of these folks. So it's okay to prescribe prefabricated foot orthoses with um, patients with greater than normal pronation to reduce pain. But again, the goal there is to reduce the pain to allow them to better tolerate the exercise. Biofeedback, they mention in here, um, should not be used um, on the medial vasti musculature to augment knee-targeted quad exercises. With level C evidence, um, they recommend, which level C, just to review, is kind of the middle of the road. Um, it means there's usually some conflicting evidence on this, but that gait training um, may be helpful to allow for an adopted forefoot striking pattern in runners that are currently rear foot strikers. So that's where I was saying before, when you're examining, looking at runners, this, that subpopulation specifically with patellofemoral pain, if you're looking at them and they're rear foot strikers, there is some good research to suggest that, um, gait training and motor control training to allow them to become more forefoot strikers can reduce their um, patellofemoral pain. So again, keep in mind that's a subgroup of folks though. Um, I thought it was interesting in this CPG, you can definitely tell it's newer because they mentioned blood flow restriction training. That is in here at a level F evidence. So keep in mind CPGs are published based on their combination of meta-analyses. And with level F evidence, that means an expert opinion. So there's not a long, lot of evidence on this yet. I think it's just because there's not a lot of research on it yet. But they say that you can use blood flow restriction training plus high repetition knee exercise therapy. But you need to make sure you're really monitoring for adverse events and for those with um, 
other underlying health conditions that may not be good candidates for blood flow restriction therapy. I personally have used it and seen some good results with it. So I, I think there's just needs to be more research on it. But with those, you know, similar to dry needling, you just have to make sure you pick the right patient. The next intervention they mentioned in the CPG is needling therapies. Um, basically with level A evidence, they suggest um, not to use dry needling for the treatment of patellofemoral pain. And they specifically mention like trigger point dry needling of the vasti musculature, um, even though it's combined with knee exercise therapy. So um, just something to keep in mind. And then the manual therapy recommendation is that there's no level A evidence, no strong use for just manual therapy as a standalone treatment. Again, I think it probably has a time and place, you know, with patellar, if you have someone that's in that older category, has some hypomobility, they just recommend not as a standalone treatment and that you combine it with those exercise therapies. Level against the recommendation. Ultrasound, cryotherapy, phonophoresis, ion, Easton, laser. Um, so research tells us that those are not going to really improve pain or function um, for this category of patients with patellofemoral pain, regardless of what subgrouping they may fall in. Patient education, you know, it's in here as a level F evidence because there's not a lot of strong research on it specifically in the patellofemoral pain population, but I think there's always a time and place for it. Um, they suggest using it for load management, body weight management when appropriate, the importance of adherence to active treatment like exercise therapy, which can sometimes be a hard sell because this is so chronic for some of these patients, and any kind of biomechanical changes that may behoove them to make. Those are the things you really want to be educating on um, and, you know, de-emphasizing those passive modalities like foot orthoses, bracing, those sorts of things. The last thing I want to touch on with level A evidence, they say that clinicians should combine physical therapy interventions for the treatment of the patients with patellofemoral pain, um, which is going to result in a superior outcome compared with no treatment or standalone treatments like those flat foot inserts, foot orthoses in the short and the medium term. Exercise therapy is the critical component and should be the focus of any combined intervention approach. Interventions to consider combining with exercise include those foot orthoses, patellar taping, patellar mobilizations, and some lower limb stretching. So those are your best combinations with those strengthening and movement coordination exercises. So like I said, most of the CPG covers, you know, the breakdown of those classifications and then kind of how do we treat them, but there's not a lot of differentiating based on no, what category I mean, you're in, differences in treatment. And, no, I think Do you have anything, great. Alexis, you want to add on that one? I know that was a little bit of a longer one. So as always, if you have any questions, please feel free to send us an email. We're more than happy to help. Um, you know, keep in mind this, this knee episode really just covered patellofemoral pain because it's one of the areas we really didn't get to in season one, but season one did have a lot of other knee, um, episodes where I know right, that we covered more much. about outcome measures and stuff. So if some of that's feeling... Mm -hmm.